live from Earth, it's Space Radio. This is Paul Sutter, and coming up, we're talking about moist exoplanet atmospheres and, of course, taking listener questions about all things in the universe. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios in New York City, and you can follow along or leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com. And in today's Blue Shift, I'll be talking about it's a matter of interpretation. But first, the news. Hello, space cadets. Welcome to Space Radio. I'm Paul Sutter, astrophysicist at Ohio State and the Flatiron Institute. And for the next half hour, your agent of the stars. Got an exciting show for today where we talk about space, astronomy, astrophysics, rocketry. If it's above the Earth's atmosphere, it's in this show's universe. This show lives on listener questions. We record every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern here in Spaceman Studios of New York City. So leave a voicemail at spaceradioshow.com to get yourself on the air. You can also follow along with our space cadets tuning in live from around the world, including but not limited to London, UK, Ashburton, New Zealand, Montevideo, Uruguay, the nation's capital. I'm assuming Washington, D.C., Pell City, Alabama, L.A., California, South Austin, Texas, Galway, Ireland, and Dublin, Ireland, and more. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the link so you can follow along. We'll take questions that you send there too. Seriously, folks, I am so lazy, but I somehow get a show out every week, and that's because you provide the content. So get those questions in. Before I start taking calls, I want to share some interesting bits of news I caught recently. And what really got on my radar is a very moist exoplanet. You know, we're looking for life outside the Earth. Like, that is one of the top goals in astronomy nowadays is the hunt for life outside of the Earth. It's a real game. It's a real thing we're doing. And what we're specifically looking for is a copy of the Earth. We're looking for a planet about the same size, about the right distance from its star, with a star like the sun. We don't know what forms life may take in the universe, but we know what this kind of life looks like and acts like and smells like. So we're going to look for that because we know exactly what that looks like. We haven't found it yet. We haven't found one. We haven't found life. Otherwise, you know, we'd be talking about it nonstop. But we haven't found an exact copy of the Earth yet. But we keep getting closer and we keep seeing like interesting little parallels. You know, an Earth-like planet with water on the surface, that's a unicorn. It's obviously special. We're not going to typically see that in the universe. Otherwise, we would have found like a thousand by now. So Earth-like planets are definitely unicorns. And there's this one planet that's hitting the news, uh, K218b. It's it's a unicorn, but it's kind of a stinky unicorn. It's not the greatest example, but it's a very interesting step. What K218b has is water in its atmosphere. Now, we've found water in the atmospheres of planets before. That's not such a big deal. But this planet is in the habitable zone of its star, which means liquid water can potentially exist on its surface. So here we have a planet in the habitable zone of its star 
with confirmed water vapor in its atmosphere. Does that mean there's oceans? Does that mean there's life? Don't know yet. Don't know yet. It's not the greatest planet out there. That's why it's a little bit stinky to me. It's orbiting a red dwarf star. This thing is tiny. It's temperamental. It has massive flare-ups. I wouldn't want to live around it, but again, I didn't grow up in that kind of neighborhood. And also, it's kind of big. It's not an Earth-sized planet. It's a super-Earth. It's eight times the mass of the Earth. Can life get started on a planet with such extreme gravity, so close to a temperamental dim star? Uh, We don't know. Jury's out. Jury's out. But it's very, very interesting. We have a planet. Doesn't quite check all the boxes, but it checks some very, very interesting ones like water vapor in its atmosphere. And we figured this out because as the planet swings in front of its star, some of that starlight passes through the atmosphere and any elements in the atmosphere will change the characteristic of that light. We can detect it through the spectrum. Voila, that is how we identify water vapor. And upcoming missions like the James Webb Space Telescope are going to do this a lot. So researchers for this particular example of K218b had to dig through Hubble Space Telescope archives, had to develop special algorithms to do it. It, it was They had to put a lot of work in. James Webb Space Telescope hopefully can do this on the snap. So let's see. Let's see. Is there life? I suppose we'll find out one of these days. That is the latest and greatest when it comes to space. It's time to have a conversation. Remember, you can leave a voicemail or follow along live at spaceradioshow.com. We've got some voicemails ready to go from callers who ask questions. How simple is that? You go to spaceradioshow.com and you press a little button, you speak into your microphone, you ask your question, and then it gets on the air as soon as Greg can play the tape. Hi, Paul. Steve here calling from Aberdeen, Scotland. I was inspired by your recent broadcast on the subject of light sails and their shortcomings caused by the lack of momentum inherent in photons. It made me think, why don't we install an ion engine on the moon and aim a stream of ions at the sail instead of photons? Ions have a colossal amount of momentum compared to photons and can be accelerated to very high velocities. What's the error in my thinking? Very, very fun question, Steve. So I I, I did a whole Ask a Spaceman thing and a bunch of YouTube videos all about this breakthrough starshot initiative and the concept of using a light sail where light from the sun bounces off the sail and use that to accelerate the spacecraft. Your spacecraft has to weigh less than a paper clip or, or no breakthrough starshot uses your lasers, more lasers, you know, literally trillions of times stronger than we our most powerful laser day. It's just listen to those episodes because they're a hoot. Steve is wondering, why don't we use ion engines? Like, why don't we, like, shoot particles at the light sail instead of using lasers? Because particles have a lot more momentum to them, so they can kick around a spacecraft a lot better. There's a few reasons why this is actually going to be more challenging than using photons. Yes, the ions, like electrons or protons, whatever you want it to be, 
they have more momentum, which means you have to do a lot more work to accelerate it. So to shoot the beam of ions at the light sail, you need a big ion gun and you need to spend even more energy to accelerate those ions to get them out to your light sail. And that's actually going to cost more energy than just using a laser. And second, ions are affected by magnetic fields. And our solar system is awash in magnetic fields. We have the Earth's magnetic field. We have the Sun's magnetic field. We have Jupiter's magnetic field. You shoot these ions around trying to go long distances and trying to be ultra super precise because you're aiming this spacecraft at another star. Man... Just that level of precision with all these wiggling, wobbling magnetic fields, it's going to go nuts. So actually lasers are the best bet, but even that is going to be incredibly challenging. All right, I think we got time for more. Greg, hit another button and play the tape. Good morning, Dr. Sutter. Hey, quick question. Was there ever a phase in the universe's earliest development where gravity was not yet a thing? And if so... Would that phase not be characterized by the dimension of space-time? Just wondering if space-time and gravity evolve in lockstep and at the same time and in the same ways. Thank you so much. Oh, really awesome question here, Lori. So gravity is linked to space-time. This is our modern understanding of gravity. You bend and warp space-time, this is our experience of gravity. So as Lori's asking, has gravity always been a thing? Yes and no. Gravity has always been around, but we suspect in the very earliest moments of our universe, it was merged with the other forces of nature, where all four forces of nature were unified into a single force. In that case, if that is accurate, and we're pretty sure it is, then gravity by itself ceases to exist. There's only this single unified force. What happens to space-time at those scales? Because gravity is bending a space-time, we honestly don't know. This is a question that can only be answered by a quantum theory of gravity, which we don't have. Don't let the string theorists fool you. We do not have a quantum theory of gravity yet. Super fun question, Laurie. Maybe we'll figure it out someday. I don't know. I don't think I'm going to be the one, but hopefully one of these days we crack quantum gravity. <sighs> thanks for those awesome questions, and thanks for pressing those buttons, Greg. I really appreciate it. We're going to take a quick break. Don't forget to leave a voicemail to join the conversation or catch the live streams on YouTube and Twitch. Go to spaceradioshow.com for all those links. I'm Paul Sutter. This is Space Radio, and this show is brought to you by you go to patreon.com slash pm sutter to learn how you can keep this show going it's true you're literally paying as little as one dollar a month to keep this show alive how can i thank you probably by saying thank you and i'll see you after the break support for 90.5 wcbe and space radio comes from thompson hine a business law firm serving clients for more than a century. Thompson Hine provides innovative client service through SmartPath, a smarter way to work, predictable, efficient, and aligned with client goals. More information about the firm at thompsonhine.com. 
Welcome back, everyone. I'm Paul Sutter, and this is Space Radio. We've got more questions ready to go, but remember, you can join the conversation by leaving an online voicemail or by following the live streams. Go to spaceradioshow.com for the links now. Once again, I have so many Space Cadet questions lined up that it's time for lightning ground. Greg, are you going to add music here? Not? No, that's fine. We're just going to go. Boom. Uh, Vinayak Sharma Sharma of Tally on YouTube is asking, is it true that black holes hold pure dark energy? Black holes don't, they do have a lot of vacuum inside of them. They have a lot of empty space and wherever there's empty space, there's dark energy because it's a property of empty space. But all the mass, all the matter of a black hole is concentrated in that infinitely dense point at the center called a singularity. Now, do we fully understand singularity? No, but we wish we did. Isaac Grimes on YouTube is asking, how come black holes are still black if you're to fall inside of one? From the outside, because light can't escape, but once you're inside with the light, like just why is it dark? Very, very cool question. The way I like to visualize black holes, and this is backed up by the mathematics, is a place where space itself is flowing inwards. It's it's like it's like a waterfall or like a sinkhole in the water, where water just keeps flowing and flowing and flowing, where space itself flows in towards the center. In the event horizon, the edge of the black hole is that place where the space is flowing in faster than the speed of light. So if you're a beam of light and you want to get out, if you're just outside the event horizon, then you can fight against that onrushing you know, waterfall of space and you can make it out. But if you're at the event horizon, you try to get out because you're going the speed of light, but space itself is dragging you in faster than the speed of light and so that you never escape. So all this stuff that goes in, the light that tries to get out is like climbing up a waterfall. It's just, it just can't do it. Campbell Duncan on Twitch, how likely would it be for us to find very heavy elements like gold and radioactive elements on planets and other solar systems when they are created in normal supernova? Yeah, so we know that the heavy elements in the periodic table are created by a couple different processes. One is from supernova, the death of massive stars. And the other is kilonova, which is what happens when two neutron stars merge together. And the kilonova are responsible for more of some elements like gold, while the supernova are responsible for more elements like other elements that will go unnamed because I can't remember them off the top of my head right now. And our solar system, our particular solar system, has a lot of gold in it. And there's a, there was relatively nearby in the distant past a kilonova detonation that seeded our solar system with a lot of gold. So Campbell's asking, like, if you go to just some random part of the galaxy... If it didn't happen to be near a kilonova in the past 5 billion years, is there going to be a lot of gold there? And the answer is no. The particular mix of elements in a solar system depends on what kind of activity happened nearby in the past few billion years. It's almost like a like a genetic tree, or, you know, like like parents and children. Like if you there a certain trait 
can only come about from a combination of genes. And so you need the right lineage in order to have that trait. But we're still working out. We, we haven't studied the elemental composition of many solar systems. So we're still working out the demographics of that Adam Synergy on YouTube. The James Webb Space Telescope is getting shipped to its launch site on a barge. Just an ordinary barge. Should I be worried? You know what? When it comes to hauling big, giant, heavy things on the ocean, do you have another better option than a normal barge? That's all I'm asking, Adam. That's all I'm asking. Andy Cowley on YouTube. What do we think of the new planet with water on it? Yeah, this this K218b. Very cool. There's not we don't know if there's water on the surface. We know there's water in the atmosphere, which is a new thing because it's in the habitable zone. Is there water on the surface? We just don't know. Philippo on YouTube. Let's talk about this K218b. This planet is eight times the mass of the Earth. The surface gravity is 2.7 times Earth gravity. So it's like living at 2.7 G. Can it have a proper atmosphere? Can there be life? Like this is a this is a lot of gravity. K218b does have an atmosphere. That's how we figure out there's water vapor inside of it. Certainly massive plants can have nice thick atmospheres. Can there be life? What would it look like? I was talking with the space cadets uh, in, during the break. And even if life does appear, it could be that chemical rockets aren't powerful enough to get you to escape velocity. So you may never have a space program, which is kind of depressing. Can life appear on a planet like this? Probably. I mean, life is pretty, pretty ingenious when you think about it. But we'll see. This is just such an open, wonderful, mysterious question that we just don't know the right conditions it takes to lead to life. Maybe giant planets are no-goes. Maybe most life appears on giant planets and we're the oddballs. Who knows? It's a very, very fun question to consider. SAHM on YouTube is asking... He remembers Kip Thorne was discussing an element of space going into a black hole, getting thinner and flatter as it's closer. Uh, does that mean that the source behind the event horizon is one-dimensional? The singularity of a black hole is zero-dimensional. It's a point in space, a geometric point. The event horizon itself is a two-dimensional surface surrounding that, the surface of a sphere. As you fall in, because all that gravity is concentrated in a single point, that is going to make you elongate and stretch out and thin out this awesome process that we literally call spaghettification. And that is because all the matter is compressed into a zero-dimensional point. Harry Miles on YouTube. How surprised would I be if we found life elsewhere in the solar system? You know, some people are surprised. I am generally a curmudgeon when it comes to new or exciting discoveries in astronomy. And I try not to get my hopes up about exciting new discoveries, especially when it comes to extraterrestrial life, because that is such a high bar to clear. I have a soft spot in my heart 
for the icy moons of the outer worlds. These ones that are encased in ice and have tons of liquid water, you know, these vast world spanning liquid water oceans. Are there space whales in the waters of Europa? Probably not. Are there space bacteria in the waters of Europa? I don't know. There's something about it that just gets me excited, and I can't deny it. It gets my heart all a fluttery, and maybe, maybe, 50-50, that's as much as I'm giving you. That's as much as this this curmudgeon heart is giving you. We got time for a quick one, Nebula Cluster. What kind of gravity could anything get off of it? Oh, yeah, with that kind of gravity, could anything get off of it? Maybe. Could the aliens of K-218B have space flight? It's going to be way tough for them. Man, we are almost out of time. But before we go, it's time for the blue shift. I'm Paul Sutter, and you're listening to Space Radio. And this is the blue shift of my opportunity to get a little bit closer to you. And I recently posted on my blog called Ab Initio, which you can find at pmsutter.com notes about uh, what science is and the nature of science. And and this gets into the philosophy of science and views of science, uh, which is a very, very complex and nuanced and very fun topic. I come down on the side that, that what we expose or what we understand in our scientific theories isn't reality itself, but representations of reality of mathematics that try to capture the behavior of nature but isn't nature itself like we can talk all day about say quantum fields quantum fields are a cornerstone of modern physics do quantum fields actually exist i mean that's a pretty deep question right we use quantum fields to explain the behavior of subatomic systems and it's our best model so far but does that mean quantum fields actually exist but of course if you start going down these lines you start asking does anything exist do electrons exist or are they just mathematical models do my hands exist or are they just models in my brain Ooh starts to get a little bit tough, but it's a fun thing to think about on a random Saturday afternoon. And speaking of things to do where we can have very cool and fun discussions, I am leading another Astro Tour. We're doing a Caribbean cruise next August, August of 2020. We are leaving out of Galveston, Texas, which is going to be so awesome because we're visiting the Houston Space Center, and then we're getting on a ship and we are going to do stargazing every single night. We're going to visit some Mayan ruins to explore how they understood astronomy. And if you've ever thought to yourself, man, I would love to go on vacation, but I wish Paul Sutter would come with us. This is your chance. Astro.tours. Astro.tours. Space is limited. Get your name and register so you reserve a spot. And I would love to see you in the Caribbean. How, how much fun is that? A lot of fun is the answer to that question. And unfortunately, this broadcast is almost done. Thank you for joining me on this voyage of space radio. Once again, I'm Paul Sutter, and this show is brought to you by you. Visit patreon.com slash pmsutter.com 
Let's learn how you can contribute. Thanks to Greg Mobius for producing Nancy Graziano for wrangling the space cadets and all the flying crew. And WCBE Radio for making this show possible. Catch the live stream every Thursday at 4 p.m. Eastern. Visit spaceradioshow.com for more info, links to the live stream locations in the episode archive. And of course, thanks again, space cadets, for listening. See you next week. And remember, science is for sharing. End of transmission. Thank <laughs> you.